good leaders are on a journey of continual improvement. In a market worth more than $14 billion, which of all the development tools available take leaders furthest on their career journey? Because at the end of the day, they're simply models and tools to get conversations going. And if diagnostic tools get the conversations going, says trainer Phil McCredden, these are often the toughest conversations and it's what happens next that matters most. Stopping and reflecting on the way I feel three times a week for five minutes at the end of the day. Can you really learn emotional intelligence in a day, in a room full of suits? Ben Palmer of Genos International says it's an important place to start. He unbundles EI and suggests ways for you to give your EI muscles a regular workout. So our very primary emotions, I can tell you <laughs> that, you know, good, bad, fear, anxiety. And after three decades working in emotional intelligence, Palmer gives us a peek into some of his own EI journey. Who knows their level of personal excellence. We don't know how to measure it uh, and we don't know how we're doing against others. If we want to compete with robots, Alex Crossley says it's time to measure our personal excellence and to understand how to boost it. Every single picture in her house has been turned upside down and, and sort of put in a different place. Some of the techniques Crossley's clients use may surprise you, but he says they get results. My name's Kirsten Lees and this is Insight Edge, the leadership podcast from the Australian Institute of Management. This month, we're looking at the tools on the market that help leaders understand who they are and how they work with others. The leadership development market is worth $14 billion in the US alone. A good chunk of that goes on off-the-shelf and bespoke diagnostic and development tools. But do they really work? Phil McCredden talks us through 360-degree feedback. What can a leader learn from asking everyone around them what they think? What are the risks? And how do you take the download of feedback and weave it into a development plan that takes the individual and the company onto bigger and better things? Then we talk to Dr Ben Palmer, one of the brains behind a suite of emotional intelligence tools developed in Australia 15 years ago that have been embraced worldwide. He unbundles why emotional intelligence matters and what it is like to take a room full of leaders and tell them it's time to talk about feelings. Finally, a new field of leadership development that's gaining traction, personal excellence. Alex Crossley of the Institute of Customer Excellence has built a unique international data set on a range of behaviours and habits of the highly successful it's time, he says, to measure our excellence and if we want to compete with robots, learn how to boost it. My name's Kirsten Lees and you're listening to Insight Edge, a podcast all about leadership from the Australian Institute of Management. You can subscribe to Insight Edge on iTunes and while you're there, leave us a review. First of all, 360-degree feedback. According to the Centre for Creative Leadership, it was developed by the German military during the Second World War, but that's just an interesting distraction. Phil McCredden delivers the Leadership Practices Inventory 360, which is LPI 360, assessment tool with leaders and teams. I asked him about his recent work and how to make 360-degree assessment a truly useful part of a leader's development journey. They were a 
client who had had been bought out by an equity firm and and the the board, which was the equity firm, wanted to get some more feedback back to the board as well. So we felt that the LPI 360 was good for, for two purposes. One is to provide some feedback to the board about where the CEO was at in their um, performance, um, but also, uh, and really just using it as a dialogue discussion tool for that. Um, but secondly, and perhaps more importantly, to be able to use it as a launching spot for a development plan for the CEO on what they could do with themselves and the executive team um, to improve their performance. Well, let's start with what works what, or what the strengths of the program and the materials surrounding it are from your point of view. I think um, like all of these models, it provides a model where you can talk about potentially something that is quite subjective and something that is can can contain quite high emotion. And it provides the model provides a vehicle for people to step back and look at it a bit more objectively. And for me as the consultant to present the model as a framework that they can actually have a language to talk about some hard stuff. Um, people find it difficult um, and we... Often, when we're talking about this sort of stuff, we're often going towards the negative, what's not working, or that, or blaming or scapegoating that person. And I think the tool is really helpful on focusing, one, on balancing it to say, hey, there's some positive stuff happening here. And, and two, to say, this is not a fundamental character problem with this person, but rather it's an, a, some behaviours that have been learned over time and we can actually work on those behaviours and uh, and change them. So the 360 is a diagnostic tool that tells you strengths and weaknesses, gaps and opportunities for, for improvement. Mm-hmm. What happens next when you've got that kind of map? There's a leadership practice inventory facilitator's guide that's available um, from the Leadership Challenge website, and it takes you through how to use the tool. And at the end of, the t- uh, end of that process, the development or the focus is on the development of a personal development plan for the person's leadership. And that's really what the focus is on. How can we improve this person? And so it's a positive focus, not a negative focus. Um, I know that some people have used the tool in the past as they've made a decision, we want to get rid of this person, so we need some empirical data to support that decision. In my opinion, that would not be a good use of this tool. This tool is primarily used to say, to actually work with somebody and improve their leadership skills. Really have to, as a consultant, fill in the gaps about bridging the gap to the leadership plan. Um, It doesn't actually help you enough, I don't think, in actually formulating what that plan could be. It doesn't help you as a consultant or it doesn't help you, the person who's, who's having the 360 assessment? Uh, both probably. It, it does rely on the consultant's knowledge of the Leadership Challenge uh, book as well as the, I guess, the, the skills of the consultant to be able to bridge from the data to a plan. It's not as simple as doing A and then following that with B. Um, there, is a, there is a jump um, that has to be made. And that's why you need somebody that is steeped in this and skilled at and experienced in being able to um, 
develop leadership plans for people. So it's a tool, but it needs to be delivered in a context is what you're saying. The consultancy and the experience that you give is what makes it a useful process for the person and the company. Yeah, it's not a tool that anybody can just pick up and run with. It's a tool that you must have a a consultant that, one, is experienced in and knows the leadership practice symmetry uh, content, and two, is experienced in performing reviews and being able to uh, get out from, in the conversation, get out from people what, what's really being said. Because at the end of the day, there's simply models and tools to get conversations going. And so you need a consultant that is skilled at being able to run those conversations. And I would very much agree that it really needs to be a third party, not somebody who is, for instance, the, the, the boss or the person in charge needs to be somebody independent. Just kind of like describe to me when you sit down with that first meeting with someone who all they know is they're going to have this review and they also mm. know, like all of us, it's a kind of test that we have to pass mm. and it, there's career mm. implications for that test. How, what's mm. the sort of environment? How do you start that conversation? Yeah, well, there's actually, um, I'm actually at pains to say that it's, um, not an exam that they're going to pass or fail in, um, but rather what we're using the tool for is to sense and, and, and fish for information about where they can improve. And I'm very much at pains to point out that any leader, no matter how exceptional they are, can all improve. Good leaders are on a journey of continual improvement and, and that this tool is um, very helpful for that. Um, about assessing where they can improve, and so, and that that uh, the, the tool is about receiving feedback from their uh, the person that they report to, people that they um, their colleagues, people that that report to them, and maybe some selected and trusted observers for, for them as well. And what we say is that when we do the uh, the pooling of the information, that we are not going to just take one person's view of the world, but rather it's a a balanced view of the world um, from a whole range of perspectives Um, because it's quite possible that one person has had a bad experience, particularly, say, a direct report that has just been told off by the person um, in the last week and so they fill out that report quite negatively at that moment in time. Um, That issue may be resolved by the time we come to sit down and discuss the results. So... It's a bit of a, a moving feast, and it's important to say there was there's always context behind the results, and we're going to have a chance to talk about those contexts from your your perspective. Emotional intelligence is a leadership thing. It became one in 1995. Ben Palmer was studying psychology at Swinburne University when Daniel Goleman published Emotional Intelligence, and reading Goleman's book sparked an interest in EI that has fueled Palmer's PhD research and career ever since. It led him ultimately to develop the first Australian emotional intelligence assessment tools for the workplace. 
Ben has worked on EI development with a large number of blue chips across industries for the last three decades. He's the CEO of Genos International and offers EI assessments and programs around the world. I asked him to explain to Insight Edge why emotional intelligence at work matters. I think emotions really play a very significant role in three very important parts of ourselves. Firstly, the way we feel influences the way we think and the decisions that we make. You know, you don't ask the boss for more resources if the boss is in a bad mood. The scientificness under that is it's called mood congruent thought. Moods bias the way we think and the decisions that we make. Secondly, the way we feel influences our behaviour, where emotions show up in our tone of voice, in our facial expressions, in our body language, and therefore are fundamental to how we connect, collaborate, communicate, build rapport, influence people, and so on. And finally, one of the most robust findings in the social sciences is the way people feel directly impacts the way people perform. In business, we've known for many years now that people in businesses where they feel valued, cared for, consulted, informed, understood versus anxious, worried, stressed, concerned outperform uh, the latter, if you like. So uh, if we think about that as a background, what's the effectiveness of our tools? I find a lot of people in business get very focused on things like their culture and their strategy and their business in a very cognitive way in a very output task focused way and don't think about the fact that underneath that is your kind of emotional culture and how people feel and that's fundamental to how we interact, fundamental to the quality of the decisions that we make and how employees perform is feelings. And so in terms of the effectiveness of our programs and and what we do with people is we just kind of bring awareness firstly about this science of emotions to managers and how they can utilise that science to drive better decisions, behaviour and performances in their in their businesses. We like to think of emotional intelligence in a leadership context as intelligently using emotion to produce a desired result. I'm, I'm wondering what it's like when you get people, as you say, who are cognitive and output focused and, and that's what they're judged on, into a room to talk about their emotions. Are they looking for measurable outputs for, the, for spending their time? Mm. I find, you know, in any room of, you know, sort of 10 to 20 adults, by way of example, you usually have a third of people who kind of are, are very keen to know this kind of stuff. They've read a bit about it. They've learned a bit about it. And they're, they're really keen because they they are kind of seeing other businesses and colleagues and they're reading about things like what we've been talking about. Then you have a, a, a group usually in, in a group of 20 who sit in the middle who, oh, you know, I'm here for another development program. I hope this one's interesting. And then you do have people who are quite sceptical still uh, about this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they think that the performances of businesses are mostly driven by, you know, the quality of the product, the location, all those more tangible kind of, of things. And so you usually have that, that mixture of emotions present in the group before you even kind of begin. So how do you begin to make shifts on that? I, I find the sceptics are shifted by data and facts. So showing case studies, presenting research, um, that is quite, you know, here's what ANZ Bank did with this and this is the outcome. 
helps to start moving those the sceptics. The other end of the equation, the people who are really keen and ready and wanting to be there anyway, I find with, with them you've got to kind of address their expectations more by giving them the right tools and techniques, by giving them experiences that helps them think about themselves and, and how to apply the content. You've already won their hearts, if you like. It's more about now giving them the tools and practices. So, um, yeah, so in, in our programs, uh, in any good AI program, I think you've got to have what I call mindset shifting material that's, that ranges from very research-oriented facts and figures-based kind of stuff through to experiences that help people see the value of this for them and their business. Secondly, then, you've got to have what I call the toolkit. You've got to give people practical models and tools that they can apply on the job in their daily interactions to produce that outcome. And then thirdly, you've got to give them the skill set stuff. So you've got to have interesting... um, role plays and scenarios and uh, real practice application of that toolkit before they get out and, and use it. And nine times out of ten, I find a lot of people are very very concerned about, sceptical of or worried about participating, for example, in role plays. But that's often the bit they get the most out of. Um, so, yeah. It's so interesting because we, we've spoken to quite a few people who've done this program and, and other equivalent programs that are on the market. Several of them have said the role plays are what make it real. So that everything's yeah. interesting, and, but it's only when you're doing it yourself or giving it a go in a um, safe environment that it begins to sink in. I think, too, that the other thing a facilitator needs to do to really make an AI program work is to share appropriately some of their own stuff and to be vulnerable. If I give a little example, one of the first activities we do in our AI programs is something called the 24-hour emotions exercise where we give people 60 seconds to reflect on the feelings that they've been experiencing over the last 24 hours. And particularly men often will get four or five words down on the page and then start looking around the room. And it is a real kind of experiential way of helping them think about their level of emotional awareness. But some people get quite concerned too when they look around the room and can see some others in the room have written, you know, uh, 15, 18 words down the first And so I'm, by way of example, if I see that in the classroom, sometimes we'll say, after my six-year PhD in emotional intelligence, I did this exercise and I got four words. And this is a very authentic story. It's a true story. And I say, you know, the first realisation I had from this is that I knew emotional intelligence very cognitively, but I didn't know it within myself. I think that that helps, helps people um, reduce their own worries about what's just happened to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just wondering what those four words might have been. <laughs> well, very primary emotions, I can tell you that, you know, good, bad, fear, anxiety, helpful, you know, stuff like that. Sounds like my morning. So the other thing that, that's come up a lot, people people ask, and also I'm wondering, you can teach people, you can give people facts and you can mm. give people tools, but when we walk out of the classroom environment, uh, maybe 24 hours later, don't we slip back into who we are? Yes, if we don't actually look for 
opportunities to put what we've learned into practice. So I'm very explicit at the front of my program saying more than anything, this is the content. The real work with this starts after the program. And you're really only going to get the full benefits of the program by taking the time to systematically practice applying the content. And the good thing is, is that you have the opportunity to practice applying the content almost every working minute of the day if you're in a leadership position. Um, but it, I, I think people who really do improve their emotional intelligence demonstrably and specifically, in my experience in the last three decades of working in this area, are those that really systematically make and take the time to consciously apply the material that you provide to them. And it starts at a very simple practical level by things like um, stopping and reflecting on the way I feel three times a week for five minutes at the end of the day. It, or um, saying, okay, where can I apply particular tools that I'm giving, given in um, the program? So one might be team meetings, for example. One of the things I like to teach people is about the ratio of positive to negative experiences that you need to be sort of conscious of creating as a leader in business, and that ratio is um, about five to one. So how do you create and be conscious of positive experiences that you're creating for people, well, you know, it can range from the real micro um, non-verbal stuff that you do, smiling, making eye contact, acknowledging people when you see them by name, through to other things like asking how their family's going and, and so on, through to things like in meetings, always starting meetings with um, purpose and meaning and taking five minutes before you get into content to go around the room and say, you know, what's been going really well and what hasn't for people. Uh, you know, like looking for, taking the time to systematically think about and explicitly look for the opportunities to actually practice applying the theory and the content that people are given. That's the key difference. And is there a, a thick line or a thin line between emotional t intelligence at work and emotional intelligence in the rest of our lives? I think a very thin line. Um, I... I the tagline of our business is game-changing for business and life-changing for people. I find people who struggle emotionally at work often, not always, but often struggle emotionally, socially and romantically as well. And this is the thing I think is so valuable for business when they take an emotional intelligence development approach that you're usually... If the program's good, giving people skills and capabilities that they can apply socially and romantically. And we know that when people are more effective socially and romantically, they are more effective at work. You can't divorce yourself from your life outside of the workplace and your life outside of the workplace has a large impact on your life inside of the workplace. Just, honestly, I get the biggest kick out of it when people come and say, oh, the team's performing better, but it's the relationship I have with my 17-year-old daughter or, um, you know, the, the way I'm get, now getting along with my mother like I never used to. I think that, that's the real um, personal kicker for me out of this kind of work. A final question, Ben. There's an app for everything these days, and there's certainly a lot mm. of apps for emotional intelligence kind of support. I wondered if you had a perspective of any or, or thoughts on any of those. Mm. I think 
apps around mindfulness in particular are very, very useful. I think mindfulness is a great medium for being more emotionally intelligent because it just helps us stop and be more present with who we are, what our feelings are, and how they might be impacting um, decisions and behaviour. I think the mindfulness apps are really good. There's another one um, by uh, Zuzium, I think. I don't pronounce it right, but it's called The Stress Doctor. All of us have a... um, a unique breathing rhythm. Well, like when I say unique, like the fingertips and our hands are unique. That creates physiological calmness within ourselves. And this app is particularly good for people who get stressed or anxious in um, confined spaces and talking in front of groups or with a particular person. It uses the light on your phone to measure your pulse, and it, it helps you become more consciously aware of what that breathing rhythm is. That's a really good one. And there's others out there uh, like that. I, I think. Um, these apps are good but again it's what you do with them that's so important it's the systematic taking the time um, you know even if it's just three or four days a week five ten minutes it's all it takes to really um, help make demonstrable improvements in your emotional intelligence our third guest is Alex Crossley Alex has spent the past two years gathering data on personal excellence because he believes personal excellence will be the leadership and workplace differentiator for the future. Once we understand the dynamics behind what makes one person excellent, once we can measure what that means, we can work out how to improve our own performance. I invited Alex to explain to Insight Edge the tools he's creating and the study behind it. It's a two-year study that's involved well over a hundred entrepreneurs, senior executives, and I guess sort of B-level managers or aspirational managers, uh, primarily in Australia, uh, but also uh, from four other countries around the world. What have you learned so far? So one of the things that's uh, been interesting that's come out of this is that we, it's not been an area of focus historically. So there's been a lot of efforts at, uh, in education around strategy, process excellence, product excellence, but not necessarily focusing on the individual work habits, holistic nature of people. So that's one of being one of the interesting things that sort of has caught people's attention on this. I guess another interesting thing that's come out is that there's quite a sizable gap between where people are and what the potential is uh, across the survey pool. So we have an elite group of about 10 or 11 people who are something like 35 to 40% above the average. And then I guess out of that comes then, well, what are they doing? What kinds of things are they focusing on? I think you can never blindly copy somebody else, but there's always things that you can learn from that. What we're trying to do is almost get into a granular level. We've often seen, you know, there's sort of motherhood statements, get better, do this faster, stronger. But what does that really mean? So one of the challenges with the survey is you've got to go to enough detail, but not too much detail. So we've really split it into nine dimensions, and the dimensions are split between physical and mental and spiritual. So the physical would cover things like basically sleep and rest, nutrition, exercise, uh, and then on the mental and spiritual side, we look at our work habits, those types of things. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Uh- so would that so what that gives you is a benchmark against which an individual leader can assess their behaviors compared to the elite is that right when i've spoken with four or five groups 
and I sort of just stand in front of them and I ask people who knows what their level of personal excellence and there's usually a sort of uncomfortable scratching and we sort of we sort of instinctively know but we don't know how to measure it uh, and we don't know how we're doing against others and the other thing is if I wish to improve my personal effectiveness what do I actually focus on so what this is trying to do is allow people to get that comparison uh, see where they are but also then engender some opportunities for improvement and there's usually I would say out of most people comes five to fifteen things that seem to be where there's a greatest opportunity for improvement. Can you give me an example of a couple of those things? Um, one of the things that sort of comes to mind is around um, the physical side of things. There's a difference if you look at exercise. Males are primarily focusing on strength <laughs> and resistance training and females are better at uh, flexibility and balance training. So that starts to ask, well, what can we learn from that? So th that's the type of thing. Um, the other thing is if I looked at, uh, say, personal innovation and creativity, if we think of where the world is going, future skills that are going to be required, it's really going to be we're going to have to outperform, outthink the robots. So personal innovation and creativity is going to be very important. I guess the most overused word in the business world is disruption these days. So one of the things we look at is how about personal disruption? What are you doing literally to make yourself uncomfortable every day? because that's what the world is, or, and it's certainly what's going to be coming, so how do we do that? I mean, I'm fascinated by it because, because we are always saying things are changing, things are changing fast, how do I keep up? But we don't, um, we think the change is always outside, yeah. and it's out of our control. Yeah. So how, how we behave as individuals to be part of the change, yeah. or at least be prepared so that when it does impact us, yeah. we don't kind of fall over like, Bowls. It's almost so, I, I was just, one of the interesting things that I've, I've been doing is now starting to follow up with people who did the survey. And now we're obviously able to go back and quantify that improvement. And I was talking with someone a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that they've done is they've got this mantra of, they do something uncomfortable every single day. And what is that doing? She said she despises change, it's difficult for her. But what she's done is just sort of put in that sort of mental rigor to try and do something like that every day. So a very interesting thing she's done is every single picture in her house has been turned upside down and, and sort of put in a different place. Why? Because that sort of accesses the mind in a different way. You know, and uh, I think, you know, for her it's been very brave and, you know, but what we've seen is a 20% uplift in effectiveness over just a 10 week period, which is quite significant. It's also interesting because my personal reaction is, look, I'm, I'm a mother, I'm balancing a zillion things, I'm trying to make a living. I don't need to make myself uncomfortable. <laughs> You've got enough. But I've got enough. But <laughs> at the same time, that's exactly the problem, is that all those things are outside me. I'm not making a choice no. to disrupt. And, yes. and maybe that's what I'm doing wrong. Maybe I'm just sitting there being a victim of life's busyness and insanity. Yeah. And I need to turn the pictures upside down in my yeah. house. Well, <laughs> They probably are. <laughs> Such a mess. So, so, so one of the ones I'm doing personally is uh, freezing cold showers every day in the winter. So, you know, there's that, just that sort of mental battle that it's uncomfortable, but it doesn't yeah. last that long. But again, the interesting thing is afterwards you actually feel magnificent. So, you know, for whatever that one, two minutes, it's, yeah. Just a small thing. I think you should stick with the freezing cold showers. And I'll just, <laughs> maybe I'll tidy my house. <laughs> personal disruption. This is a really important part of what AIM does with and for 
supporting our members is looking at how leadership is effective within an organisation but also has a broader impact socially, with your community, even with family. Does your personal excellence analysis tell us anything help with, with that piece of the puzzle? How can I be a more impactful leader? Is not self-leadership the centre of leadership? Unless you sort of can, dare I say, master yourself. I think that helps a lot in leading others because I think people very much follow what you do, not what you say. And I think we've seen that uh, very much among executives. Uh, very, very good executives actually do what they say. It's very easy to say something, but if you're actually living it, uh, you only have to go into manufacturing plants where you know safety is usually a number one priority. And I watch really good executives, and what they do is they stick to all of the safety regulations. They don't walk across the lines. And all that's doing is just sending that signal that this is truly, truly important to us, and I stick to whatever it is. I put on that high vest or whatever it is. I'm living it. And, and I think this becomes a very powerful codification for employees because if they're doing it, well, oh, maybe I should do that or I can learn from that. Of the um, elite leaders that you've spoken mm -hmm. to and have taken part in this, uh, would you say that any of those represent leaders who, are, who have impact outside their working lives? Again, I guess this would be saying is basically if I, I said, what's that saying, if I transform myself, there's a knock-on effect that I will start to transform others. And so what this is really doing is making the best person I can be, and out of that is probably then that allows me the energy, the uh, integrity to start influencing others. And I think that's what a lot of them do at that elite level. There's a really, a, you can see a sort of knock-on effect uh, from the interviews, and also I've, I know some of them, so I can see what they've done. So Alex, are you looking for people to participate in the survey or? Yes, no, we'd very much like to. We'd like to expand it. We've got a, a good number of people, but I believe uh, the wider the range, the richer the database, the more interesting the comparisons. Uh, and I think then we can get into even more sort of in, um, detail around different types of groups. You know, we've got some Europeans. It'll be interesting if we get some others internationally. Are the differences between countries yes you know we've the sort of the male and female there's actually very little difference in an overall score but obviously there are differences within the 80 elements uh, entrepreneurs are definitely outperforming by quite a long way uh, managers and executives uh, so but you know the more we can go into the wider the database the more information we can get the richer the conclusions that we can draw so how do people get in touch with you I think it's best to go through the uh, the email address which is um, alex.crossley at icustomerexcellence.com. That's a bit of a mouthful, but if you just put the letter I, customerexcellence.com. And we'll have a link at the, uh, on the podcast page as well. So if That's anyone right. does want to get in touch, they can, can very readily and easily do that. Yeah, and I'm, a, I'm an A member and proud of it. So uh, I'm sure there's a way to connect through there as well. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been really, it really is a fascinating and probably very needed study. So all the best with it. And we look forward to having you back in a year to see, to see what more you've learned. Yeah, no, that's right. All right. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. And that's all from Insight Edge, the podcast all about leadership from the Australian Institute of Management. Read more about leadership tools in this month's edition of Insight Edge on leadershipmatters.com.au. Next month, we're talking about your career as a leader. And one of our guests is Linda Gratton of The 100 Year Life. Subscribe to Insight Edge on iTunes and you'll get the full series. And while you're there, we'd love you to leave us a review. 
This edition of Insight Edge was brought to you by Think First and produced with the talent and support of The Naked Coach.